I'm Dr. Donna Harrison, and I have a lot to present today, so I'm going to get started right away at 8.45. The topic we're going to talk about today is maternal mortality, and I titled it A Key Battle because it is at the interface of life issues right now, both nationally and internationally. And we're going to talk about maternal mortality in relationship to the Millennium Development Goals and what those have to do with your medical mission. We're going to talk about some uh, issues regarding the global campaign for the health Millennium Development Goals. And we're going to talk a little bit, and I want you to think about how do you partner with unbelievers, because that will be the issue that you're going to face. Well, what are the Millennium Development Goals? In September of 2000, the member states of the United Nations got together and said, uh, we think that the following goals are worth focusing world attention and world funding um, to accomplish. And I'm going to go through those goals, and you can see their targets. They agreed that eradicating extreme poverty and hunger, goal number one, was worth working toward. They agreed that achieving universal primary education was goal number two. Uh, they agreed to promote gender equality and empower women. And the way, it's, it's important not only to look at the goals, but to look at the targets. So when we talk about gender equality and empowerment of women, what got agreement was eliminating gender disparity in primary and secondary education preferably by 2005, which, of course, didn't happen, and at all levels no later than 2015. They agreed to reduce child mortality, and they agreed to improve maternal health by reducing between three-quarters the maternal mortality ratio, which we will talk about in detail. They agreed to combat HIV and AIDS, malaria, and other diseases. They agreed to ensure environmental sustainability, and they agreed to develop a global partnership for development, and that's where you come in. Okay, we're going to focus in now on three called the health-related Millennium Development Goals and their targets. Health goal number four, reduce child mortality. Number five, improve maternal health. And six, combat HIV, AIDS, malaria. We're going to focus mostly on five. The improvement of maternal health, how can you do that? Well, what they agreed was to reduce by three-quarters between 1990 and 2015 the maternal mortality ratio. Well, how in the world can maternal health be improved? It's uh, important to look at it from, step back and, and look at it from a big perspective. You eliminate what sickens and kills mothers raising children, and you make childbearing safer. Well, what sickens and kills mothers raising children? The World Health Organization in 2004 published a, a report called The Global Burden of Disease, which is worth looking at, especially if you're in a policy position. If you look at what kills people around the world, cardiovascular diseases, infectious and parasitic diseases, cancers, maternal conditions actually kind of fall a little bit toward the bottom. But this is both males and females. What about, and this is the whole entire world. What about the developing world? Well, if you look at adult mortality ratios, so this is women of childbearing age plus a little older, it's age 15 to 59 years, and you look at what kills people in high income versus lower income 
areas of the world, you see the proportions or the distribution of what kills people is roughly the same. The proportions are vastly different. So in Europe, you're likely to die whoa, of cardiovascular disease rather than a parasitic infection. But for example, in Africa, you're much more likely to die of HIV AIDS or injuries or an infectious or parasitic disease than you are of cardiovascular disease. So when we look at this, what we can say is, wow, you would save a lot of people if you could eliminate injuries, HIV, AIDS, and uh, infectious diseases. Maternal and nutritional conditions were kind of lumped together. Um, there's a reason for that. Maternal conditions aren't uh, a huge killer, um, and the nutritional conditions that kill people have to do with caregiving in the family. So. If, if you think about it from kind of a, a holistic approach, the person who's providing nutrition for the family most often is the mother. And so if you wipe out the mother, you end up with uh, nutritional problems with the entire family. So Millennium Development Goal number five was to improve maternal health. And what they chose to do, since other areas like infectious diseases and HIV AIDS were being tackled by other agencies, they chose to focus on reducing the maternal mortality ratio. Well, what is the maternal mortality ratio? WHO defines maternal mortality ratio as the number of maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. And in 2007, they published a uh, review of the World Health Organization data available on causes of maternal mortality. We're going to look pretty closely at that. What causes women to die in that, that category of being pregnant or within 42 days after pregnancy? It's a very narrow focus of what causes women to die. Most women die of hemorrhage. Hypertensive disorders is about 10%. That includes preeclampsia. Anemia, sepsis, obstructed labor, indirect causes, and 5% die of abortion. Now, this is a very slippery kind of a definition, abortion, which we'll get into a little bit later. But I want you to keep in mind this pie chart. Because if, if you look at this pie chart and you say, how can I affect maternal mortality? The answer is... is Pretty simple. You have skilled birth attendants, so you don't hemorrhage, and, excuse me, you take care of their medical problems, so you take care of their malaria, and you take care of their worms, and you give them good prenatal care, and you give them antibiotics to take care of their sepsis, and the skilled birth attendants also know when to transport them for obstructed labor. So pretty much skilled birth attendants oxytoxic drugs, and antibiotics is going to wipe out a majority of this pie chart. So we went from a goal of improving maternal health to saying we're going to look at reducing maternal mortality. So maternal health would include accidents, HIV, AIDS, the whole big picture. We're going to reduce maternal mortality. And how are we going to reduce maternal mortality? Well, what was born of this idea is the Safe Motherhood Initiative. Now, there's a fascinating paper published in The Lancet in 2007. If anyone's interested in policy, this is a great paper to get. It's by Jeremy Schiffman. And what he did was he asked the question, whatever happened to safe motherhood? So he traces out the history of the Safe Motherhood Initiative. 
1987, there was a, a meeting in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and it was the beginning of the Global Safe Motherhood Initiative. It resulted in the formation of what was called the IAG, or Interagency Group for Safe Motherhood. But it never resulted in a UN agency. It was just this sort of loose collaboration of different people who wanted to work with safe motherhood. Well, money always gets in there somewhere, and pressured by donors, um, the AIG was forced to consolidate with UNICEF and UNFPA. UNICEF is the UN organization that funds children, children's health. UNFPA is the organization at the UN that funds family planning. It's Fund for Population Affairs. Okay. This was a very contentious union, to say the least. The major source of disagreement here was that feminists supported UNFPA, but they refused to support the concept of safe motherhood. So I thought some of the, some of the comments in this article, the Schiffman article, were very interesting because he went back and he interviewed the people involved in these policy decisions. And he said, up here, ah, there's my arrow. One advocate notes that with the emergence of the partnership, Many members of the safe motherhood community are no longer sure if an initiative for safe motherhood still exists. Um, and when tracing out what happened, uh, he notes that the feminists didn't like the term safe motherhood, so the issue was never picked up by women's groups. So what you had was a situation where UNICEF has this, this big presence at the UN, and their message is so compelling, who doesn't want to help kids? And UNFPA has lots of money and an agency at the UN, but Safe Motherhood didn't have any agency. And the ground grassroots people never picked up Safe Motherhood, or at least they never got a voice at the policy level. Well, what were the disagreements? The disagreements included discussions on unsafe abortion, which we will get into, and who gets the money and what projects are funded. Now, this, this is an absolutely outstanding quote. Um, he Commenting on the place of safe motherhood amidst these partnership tensions, one respondent said, there are three siblings. Child survival, that is UNICEF, is older, richer, and more resourceful. The newborn, that is UNFPA, is small and weak, but got a new grant from Gates for $60 million. It is the small child in the family that everyone looks to. Safe motherhood is the middle child. It doesn't know exactly where to be. We need a good parent to take care of the three, equally or unequally. Safe motherhood needs more vigorous opportunities. Well, the points of agreement between the three are, are good. Mothers, are, mothers dying are a tragedy. It, we should work toward that. That's a good and noble goal to work toward. The point of disagreement is how do we solve it? Now, in 2000, there was another sort of landmark event. The UN General Assembly announced the formation of the Millennium Development Goals, of which maternal mortality made it to one of the three health-related goals. I mean, they looked at lots and lots of goals, and maternal mortality was right up there. The nations agreed. This was the member nations of the United Nations. 
And then, of course, you know, you had the consolidation. And then in September of 2007, there was another landmark event, and that occurred in London. It was called the Women Deliver Conference. This was the culmination of years of strategy. It had all the right people, heads of European governments, donors, NGOs. The editor of Lancet was there. Lancet published a whole journal. In fact, if you're interested in really looking at the initiative from a medical standpoint, get the October 2007 issue of Lancet because it's the complete compilation of the papers that were presented at Women Deliver. And I was there. What happened was it marked a triumph of the feminist part of the partnership over the safe motherhood part of the partnership. And there was a shift in definition of MDG5 away from decreasing maternal mortality with a substitution instead of increasing access to reproductive health. And how was that going to be done? The mantra there was abortion first. Okay. And I helped to co-author a response to the Women Deliver Conference, which if anyone's interested, let me know. We identified six problems with the conference, and we actually presented this both to the UN and to the the, uh, sponsors of the conference. Number one, the abortion-first approach to maternal mortality contradicts the consensus of the medical community which is that you reduce maternal mortality the most by increasing skilled birth attendance and providing emergency obstetrical care. The abortion-first approach to maternal mortality diverts necessary attention and funding from the real needs of women, which is decent health care. The commonly used figure of 500,000, 600,000 maternal deaths per year from abortion rests upon completely unreliable and unsubstantiated data. I was amazed. I went to a conference um, where it was a breakout session where the panel speakers were from Johns Hopkins. Great. They are the ones who do the WHO data. And um, Dr. Stanton sat up in front of the conference and said, you know, you can't get into the field of maternal mortality statistics without a commitment to adjust the data. And my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe that came out of her mouth. But what was even more amazing was the way some of the questions were answered. There was a guy from Benin, obviously was in the government of Benin. And he said, Dr. Stanton, can you explain to me why you took our census figures and you doubled the number of maternal deaths? He said, what justification do you have for that? And she said, well, it, it was necessary to make the numbers come out right. And I just, I, I couldn't believe it. This is WHO statistics, John Hopkins University. The abortion-first approach undermines the rule of law by abusing the UN human rights monitoring system, deliberately misinterpreting negotiated human rights documents, and exploiting the tragedy of maternal mortality in order to promote abortion rights. Women's lives are endangered because the abortion-first approach undermines health care standards and national regulations by deliberately bypassing national laws and medical regulations. Let me give you an example from the Women Deliver Conference. I was also in the session that talked about um, providing misoprostol abortions by just simply bringing in misoprostol as an oxytoxic drug, as a, as a, a way of uh, contracting the uterus. 
and then providing information about how you use it for abortion. So this would be in countries where abortions are illegal. And one of the uh, presenters at another conference was bragging about uh, how in Paraguay they had, uh, where abortion is illegal, they had done a university project where they provided uh, abortion information, <laughs> you know, how, how, in, in terms of counseling, and you know, they were counseling them about how to avoid mesoprostol. You know, of course, you take the drug this way, and these are the side effects, and blah blah blah. And they bragged that abortions increased. They had like, <laughs> and I'm not going to get the exact number right, but they had a, a huge success rate in the in most of the women who went through their counseling aborted. Um, number six, the abortion first approach targets religion, culture, and the family. Well, what does this have to do with your mission clinic? It has a lot to do with it. At Women Deliver, there were four major obstacles to universal access to reproductive health worldwide that were identified at the conference. And those four major obstacles can all be summed up in one word. You. You are the problem. The number one obstacle to the universal access to reproductive health is the presence of Protestant missionaries in the healthcare system in Africa and the presence of the Roman Catholic Church in the healthcare system in Latin America. The number two problem was the idea of healthcare workers' rights of conscience, which allows health professionals to refuse to do abortions. The number three problem was the use of ultrasound in obstetrics, which unfortunately, and that's a quote, turns the mind of the woman to the possible humanity of the fetus. No, this was verbal. And it was from my, I typed the notes as they were talking. I was astounded. These guys are so bold. They think that this is where the world wants to be. And there's a huge disconnect between the people that work at the UN level and you guys on the ground. And you know why, number four? It's because you are successful. And in several conferences, they said part of the problem is they don't have the heart of the people. And you know what? You do. The healthcare system that's trusted in Africa is not the government healthcare system, it's the missionary healthcare system. The shift in funding international programs will result in a shift in emphasis in healthcare at both the national and the local level. Government accountability will accompany that shift, since accountability is now tied to funding. So, how do you decide who to partner with? In Matthew 10, Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. If partnership requires compromising God's word, then God's will for your mission clinic is clear. See, we've got a big disconnect. Yes, there are, there's a point of intersection. Both the government organizations and the World Health Organization. And I'm not faulting them. There's lots of wonderful programs. There's lots of good things in the MDGs and lots of good things happening. But we have to be discerning and not naive about the point and intention of the programs. See, for Christians, the point of Christian missions is a witness for Christ. And we use our position as healthcare providers to show God's love with the intent that we, we are the aroma of Christ and we draw people to Christ. But the point of UNFPA, other programs, is physical health, and that term health is defined by WHO, 
UNFPA. Many times the intersection, many times there's no problem with the partnership. But in life issues, there's a big problem. There's a big disconnect, a, 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 a difference of goal. Okay, let's, uh, the world has progressed since 2007. We uh, now have the documents provided by the World Health Organization. The national level monitoring of the achievement of universal access to reproductive health. And these documents are very important for anybody who's running a hospital policy level so you understand where the goal is going in terms of reproductive health. Um, My husband and I used to do some short-term missions in Haiti, and we had a good friend of ours uh, explain to us that although Haitian Creole only has very few words, you can convey a lot of meaning. And I said, well, well, how is that? And he said, I said, Donna. She said, Sister Donna, you can't understand what they're talking about unless you understand what they're talking about, which I thought was a very profound statement. Okay, we have a little different history now of MDG5, and I'm going to read a little bit and summarize a little bit, not to bore you. Um, <clears throat> the history of the MDGs began in 2000, June, June 2000, not September. June 2000, when the report of the UN Secretary General and heads of agencies included a goal of universal access to reproductive health among the requirements for development. But note the Millennium Summit Declaration, which was the actual heads of state agreement, did not mention reproductive health. Why? Because it was rejected. That's why it wasn't mentioned. So although they rejected it, what was decided was that... uh, they would go ahead and emphasize the role of achieving universal access to reproductive health and integrate it into the MDG monitoring mechanism. Monitoring is very important. So uh, the General Assembly adopted, in 2006, adopted the Secretary General's report recommending a target, not a goal, But under the goal, there's a target. How do you achieve this goal? So they added a target of achieving universal access to reproductive health under MDG5, which addresses improvement of maternal health. Okay, so this is the rationale. Health comes from effective health care programs. Well, health comes as a gift of God in Jesus Christ. But for the WHO, health comes from effective health care programs. And you measure effectiveness by measuring indicators. The goal of universal access to health care is used as a proxy measure for progress in health. So if you want to know how healthy a population is, according to the WHO, you measure health care and universal access. A little bit of a stretch, but... Okay, now, access is a little tricky. Uh, Access to health care includes not just physical access, but information about how expensive it is, quality of services. Okay, that makes some sense, but it depends all on what you're accessing. Now, defining universal access, it's not only the availability, but the equitability. So in order to be equitable, we have to increase provision of services. Depends on what you're providing. Now, this gets a little interesting here. I talk about restrictive frameworks. Restrictive frameworks of healthcare oppose education. They oppose public funding of family planning. Well, what's included in family planning? They oppose choice. That's a very interesting 
keyword. Um, and I, I quote this here because, e <laughs> because you are the problem. Differing gatekeeping propensities of medical professionals. You don't allow all things to go through. Okay. This is directly from the determinants, what's going to be used as an indicator. And this is a, a strange thing. Under sexual health, they said what's a core type of indicator is do, does your country have a law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of gender identity, sexual orientation, or physical and intellectual disability? Now, why would you need a law about discrimination? Well, it turns out that legally the body of law, the body of jurisprudence surrounding uh, discrimination is the only body of jurisprudence strong enough to oppose the body of jurisprudence surrounding conscience. And this is the brainchild of a brilliant woman, and her name is Hillary Clinton. And she presented this entire rationale for shifting abortion rights from privacy to anti-discrimination. She presented this at the Beijing conference years ago. It has the added benefit of involving the homosexual community and its financial resources and thus tapping into the HIV-AIDS funding, which is huge and should be huge because, as you saw from the pie chart, HIV-AIDS wipes out a huge number of people, especially in the developing world. So the funding is appropriately huge and should be, but this is a stretch. Okay, now we're talking about access to family planning. Okay, and they look at two core indicators of access, number of family planning services per 500,000 population and primary health care facilities providing family planning services. Again, the, 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 the devil is in the details, so to speak. What does family planning involve? And then we have a concept of eliminating unsafe abortion. Okay, And it gets a little interesting here. Uh, so they're going to look at the number of facilities offering safe abortion services per 500,000 population. Uh, health providers who are trained to provide safe abortion services to the full extent of the law. And uh, what does this mean? Well, what is an unsafe abortion? According to WHO, unsafe abortion is defined by WHO as any procedure to terminate an unintended pregnancy done either by people lacking the necessary skills or in an environment that does not conform to minimal medical standards, or both. Okay, I can... I can believe that. But what is a stretch is these include abortions in countries with restrictive abortion laws. All right. Now this this went to some very interesting discussion at Women Deliver as uh, one of the presenters was talking about the concept of measuring unsafe abortion. And one, one of the women from uh, Marie Stopes or IPAS clinic in, I want to say Bangladesh, uh, one of the countries that, that has restrictive abortion laws, stood up and said, are you telling me that all the abortions I do in my clinic are unsafe? And the speaker completely ignored the question. She went on to say, and blah, 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 blah. So <laughs> what this means is those clinics operating illegally are unsafe until such point in time as unsafe abortion is, is eliminated. And how do you stop unsafe abortion? Well, you legalize it. Because it's not a medical definition. It's a legal definition. Okay, now let, let's look, let's get a little perspective here. Even if you would grant, and I grant, unsafe abortion is a problem. It's a huge problem. But legalizing it doesn't make it safe. And especially when you give a, a woman um, 
mesoprostol with Cytotec, or you give her RU486 and mesoprostol, and she goes out into the village and she hemorrhages to death, just because it's legal doesn't mean it was a good idea. So this is what women die of. Okay. Now we're going to take another romp in creative definition land, and we're going to look at how do you... How do you look at the efforts to eliminate unsafe abortion? Well, first of all, you have to identify how much of a problem it is. So they're going to look at obstetric and gynecologic admissions owing to abortion. And this is the details. This is the breakout, the explanation of how you're going to look at that. You're going to look at percentage of admissions for spontaneous or induced abortion-related complications to service delivery points, providing inpatient obstetric and gynecological services, that's your hospital, among all admissions, except for those for planned termination of pregnancy. Well, there's a little bit of ambiguity in this. The average person that's reading this is going to say, now, does that mean that I don't look at those women that I admit in order to terminate the pregnancy? That's probably the intent. But you could also look at that and say, well, I just don't count any admissions for planned termination of pregnancy. So the ambiguity is a problem. But what's even more of a problem is their comment on disaggregation. It says, although it would be useful, it's probably not possible or wise to attempt to disaggregate the numerator into complications caused by spontaneous and those caused by induced abortion. Okay, now... If you want to find out if something's a problem, you kind of have to identify how much of a problem it is. Okay? And you're not going to legalize or, or make illegal spontaneous abortion. Spontaneous abortion is always legal. So <laughs> what you have to do is know how much of abortion complications and admissions are coming from induced versus spontaneous. It's a no-brainer. Okay? Well, there's no methodology adequate to the task. I think this is... This may be a call of God to some of you in the room. And if you hear that call, call AppLog because we're working on this. Um, Now, the other thing that is just amazing is they say, how are you going to use this? Well, this indicator can only be used to describe conditions at one point in time. So you can't take this indicator in a country where abortion is is illegal and identify the number of admissions. And then, five years later, when it's been legalized, look at the same set of indicators and say, oh my, the number of admissions from abortion complications has gone up since we've legalized it. You can't do that. Why? Because they said so. Okay? The best use is simply measure of caseload for unsafe abortion. And again, they're mixing spontaneous and induced abortion. It's, it's, a, it's a gamish. Garbage in, garbage out. Okay, well, what's the way forward? Countries will be pressured to address service gaps. They will be pressured to monitor their progress. And they will be pressured. uh, This this measuring will be uh, accomplished by a willingness to sign partnership agreements. Which brings us to the global campaign for health millennium development goals. Now, I want you to understand as a baseline, there are many good things in this document. Many good things which we as Christians can wholeheartedly support and say, yes, let's go for this together. But regarding the life issues, it's a problem. So you have to be careful. All right, this is, this is an excerpt from some of their text at the beginning. 
In the year 2000, at the beginning of a new millennium, the countries of the world made eight promises. These were the MDGs. They committed us to working together to reduce the number of people waking up each day to grinding poverty. Three of those goals relate directly to health. They pledge us to reduce child mortality, improve women's health, and combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, and other diseases. Have you ever read Animal Farm? What's the problem with MDG5? What word is missing? Improve maternal health was the goal. And how are we going to do that? Reduce by three quarters the maternal mortality ratio. Safe motherhood has been eclipsed, but it doesn't, it hasn't disappeared. Success will be measured through a reduction in mortality and funding will be based on performance. Buck up, buddies. Development partners will closely coordinate their work with all stakeholders and the newly established heads of health agencies. These are the Health Eight, the WHO, the World Bank, UNICEF, UNFPA, UNAIDS, Gavi, GIFTAM, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The annual review of progress nationally and globally at the highest level (coughs) will be used for accountability, monitoring progress, and addressing gaps. Intermediate goals will be aggregated based on individual country plans. So these guys will direct the health of the world. What does this look like on the ground? These are some recent articles. This is December 2008, just uh, less than a year ago. A joint select committee of the Jamaican Parliament continues to debate whether or not to liberalize the Caribbean nation's laws, which currently protect the unborn, while Jamaican citizens criticize unwanted foreign pressure in support of abortion. <clears throat> Among the pressure points is a push to link abortion liberalization with the United Nations Millennium Development Goals. Jamaica's Ministry of Health has announced its support for amending this act, which aims to reduce maternal mortality. The UN General Assembly, the one in 2000, rejected tying MDG5 to abortion when adopting the MDGs in 2000. Data has consistently shown that reductions in maternal mortality are attributable to improved access to skilled obstetric care clean water, and antibiotics, as opposed to widening abortion access. Using Ministry of Health statistics, physician Wayne West has sought to rebut the perception that illegal abortion contributes significantly to maternal mortality in Jamaica. He notes that the former Minister of Health initially concluded that there was no evidence that induced abortion was a significant cause of maternal mortality in Jamaica. West asks... Who is seeking to create the impression that Jamaican women are the victims of hundreds of thousands of botched abortions with significant associated mortality and morbidity? And why? To counteract the pro-abortion push, Kingston Archbishop, joined by two other Jamaican Catholic bishops, pro-life leaders, and pro-life leaders, held a press conference calling on Parliament to continue to protect the unborn and vowing that the church groups will continue to provide support to women in crisis pregnancies. In previous remarks that attracted widespread attention, and this is a great quote, Archbishop Reese said, The people of Jamaica have not asked for abortion. The churches have not asked for it. Nor has the vast majority of civic groups or their leaders. 
a reasonable person might rightly ask the question, who exactly is it that wishes to impose abortion on this nation? The critics of liberalization are concerned about the outside pressure after an about-face earlier this year by the Ministry of Health. And I, I go through this because I want you to see how this process happens in your country, which is pro-life. Okay? The Ministry of Health had assured them in writing that an abortion policy review advisory group report recommending liberalization would not be advanced in Parliament without wide public consultation and input. However, these recommendations were quickly put forward without the consultation, immediately following a visit from the EU delegation, causing critics to wonder whether pressure was applied. European donor countries and UN agencies put direct pressure on Nicaragua, which we'll look at in a minute. Others pointed to the role of Jamaica's National Family Planning Board in promoting abortion. The National Family Planning Board is a member association of International Planned Parenthood Federation, from which it receives funding. Well, what about Nicaragua? This is an AP story written by Dr. Walter Mendieta, who was president of the Nicaraguan AMA, so, well, Nicaraguan Medical Association. I'm, I'm not going to read it all, but there's a few important things. I know it's extremely tiny, and that's why I'm going to read the important things. He said, um, the AP story about the Nicaraguan abortion ban is misleading and grossly inaccurate. The facts are that in November 2006, the people of Nicaragua and their elected representatives uh, uh, supported legislation that removed a phony therapeutic abortion exception. It's the same as the health exception here in the United States. It turns out in the United States that you can have an abortion through nine months of pregnancy for no reason whatsoever. Why? Because you can't uh, stop abortion if it affects a woman's health. And health was defined not in Roe v. Wade, but in Doe v. Bolton, which is a case that said health includes any physical, psychological, spiritual, emotional, uh, financial uh, consideration that affects the woman. Okay, so that's everything. Okay. Um, so in the years since the pro-life legislation change went into effect, maternal deaths declined 23%. And no woman has died in Nicaragua for not having a therapeutic abortion since the practice was banned in November of 2006. Women with complications from pregnancy must be offered the necessary treatment. So he basically um, went, went on to say, where are you guys coming from? Um, the AP story has helped to fuel oops, unprecedented international interference in Nicaragua's national life. And part of the issue going on here is this is really an issue of national sovereignty for many countries. Thankfully, Nicaragua has been able so far to resist this pressure. Our sovereignty is still intact. The entire free world needs to look up to Nicaragua as an example of courage and strength. Now, I understand the political stuff. I am not a political animal. Okay? I, but what I do see clearly here is here is a country who was faced with enormous pressure to cave in to a pro-abortion viewpoint, and they didn't. And that's remarkable. Well, what about Africa? The three-week assembly of Catholic bishops from throughout Africa concluded uh, in Rome with a strong call to protect the unborn child and the family from foreign ideologies. The synod issued a plea to lawmakers to promote laws that respect the dignity of all. And their, their theme was the church in Africa at the service of reconciliation, justice, and peace. They denounced the aggressive 
push of abortion and anti-family policies upon African societies in the name of development assistance. Attention focused on Article 14, the pro-abortion provision of the Maputo Protocol of the African Union. And if you're working in Africa, you really should be familiar with the Maputo Protocol. According to the church's teaching, abortion is contrary to God's will. Furthermore, this article is in contradiction with human rights and the right to life. It trivializes the seriousness of the crime of abortion and devalues the role of childbearing. The church condemns this position on abortion and proclaims that the value and dignity of human life be protected from the moment of conception to natural death. The Synod Fathers call on the church in Africa and its islands to commit herself to employ the necessary means and structures to help and accompany women and couples tempted by abortion. Moreover, they praise the courage of governments in their legislation which fights abortion. Um, Of particular importance, the Synod stated its understanding of the challenges confronting lawmakers and urged conferences at all levels to establish advocacy bodies to lobby members of parliament. Basically, they're saying, we have to engage the world, but we have to engage the world with a message which is consistent with God's will, not with a message that is inconsistent with God's will. So that the church contribute effectively to the formulation of just laws and policies for the people's good. How do we respond to all this? Well, become aware of the policies of your host country regarding the global campaign for the Health Millennium Development Goals. If they've signed on, they have committed themselves to this accountability, and funding is tied to performance. Speak out to maintain your rights of conscience to refuse to perform acts in direct opposition to the laws of God. Speak out for those goals and policies of your host country which affirm life-giving health care. Support the MDGs and and, and all the goals where you can, but where they contradict God's clear will for us to defend the fatherless and the needy, then we have to speak out against that. Life-giving health care does not include elective abortion. Actually, good health care doesn't include elective abortion. It's bad for women. Become involved in the policy-making institutions of your host country. And this is what they fear more than anything else because you have the heart and the trust of the people. You have the heart and trust of God's people. Network with your Christian community in your host country. Valuing life is characteristic of God's faithful people regardless of culture. Inform your Christian community and be a spokesperson for them in the policy arena of your host country. You as a medical professional have a status and a a gravitas that will be heard in policy circles. And if you represent your community, even, even more so. But most of all, you represent the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate gravitas. Stay abreast of developments. And how can you do that? I'm going to plug our website. Um, www.eplog.org we're the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs we are the largest one of the largest special interest groups within the American College of OBGYN but we exist because the American College is so rapidly pro-abortion and we provide evidence-based medicine information about what abortion does to women remember abortion stands on four legs The leg of, ah, it's just a blob of tissue. Well, with ultrasound, that goes away. It stands on the leg of, abortion's really good for women. And you know what the truth is? It's really bad for women. 
There's an increased association between abortion and preterm birth, over 100 studies in the literature. There's an increased association between abortion and suicide, substance abuse, and hospitalizable major depression, over 50 studies in the literature. This is information you can stand on in a secular arena. I would encourage every health professional to consider joining uh, Dr. John Patrick's Hippocratic Registry. It makes a huge difference when we're speaking at a policy level, like the health care reform bill that just almost went through funding abortion, but thank God it, it didn't. It makes a huge difference standing in front of them saying, we represent a thousand docs who will stop, which is what APLUG does, who will stop practicing if you force us to do abortions. It's a whole other thing to say. There are 400,000 practitioners who will stop practicing tomorrow if you gut our rights of conscience. That they'll listen to. So the Hippocratic Registry is not a political animal. It's Dr. Patrick's. But it does represent your way of raising your hand and saying, I, am, I will not, you cannot force me to do something against my conscience. This is a invaluable resource, info at pncius.org, the Parliamentary Network for Critical Issues, run by Marie Smith, the wife of Chris Smith, um, uh, Republican representative from New Jersey who heads the uh, Pro-Life Caucus. And the last one is www.cfam.org, which is Catholic Family and something else. They have a, a representation at the United Nations. But they, have, they put out something called the Friday Facts, which scans the world's literature looking for life issues. And finally, I want to leave you with Proverbs 24, which uh, can at times bring me to tears. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being led away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Thank you. Does anybody know what time it is? I'm glad to take questions if you want.